Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Planet B, a podcast where we're talking about climate change and its effects on planet A. I'm Wyatt Jordan. And I'm Brianna Waterman. This week, I'm super excited to talk about Dr. Robert Howarth. He's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Cornell. Some crazy cool things about this guy. In 2011, he was a part of Time Magazine's Person of the Year issue. He was named one of Time's 50 People Who Matter for his research. He's also the founding editor of the journal Biogeochemistry, and he works with his colleague and wife, Roxanne Marino. Big name. Great guy. Big name, bigger heart, as we always say at No Planet B. Yeah, this was, this was an exceptionally fun interview to do. We'll be talking mostly about fracking, about methane, about alternative energies and bridge fuels. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting, no matter how much you know about it from the get-go. So, follow me on the fuel bridge <laughs> to, to go learn about bridge fuels. Hey, Wyatt here. Uh, I just wanted to add a quick edit here for a definition that I think is important for the interview. It's about shale rock. So shale is a sedimentary rock that, because of its organic composition, as well as the heat and pressure that it withstands, is able to store natural gas within its pores. Now, shale isn't very permeable, which means that liquids don't flow through it easily, and that's why this method of fracking was developed in the first place. It takes a considerable amount of effort on our end to extract this gas from the shale rock, especially when you compare it to more conventional forms of reservoirs, which flow a little more easily. Okay, that's all. Y'all have fun. Joining us today is biogeochemist, ecosystem scientist, research scientist, professor, international man of mystery, <laughs> Dr. Robert Howarth. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Could you explain to someone who doesn't know what fracking is? Sure. Fracking is, is high volume hydraulic fracturing, and it's a process whereby uh, uh, after a well is drilled into an oil or gas uh, shale formation, uh, large volumes of water with some other chemical additives is injected under high pressure. It, it basically uh, fractures, breaks up the, the rock formation in order to release the methane natural gas or the, or the oil or, or both. And, and we're talking very, very large uh, volumes of water here. The uh, high volume hydraulic fracturing of, of a decade ago was using perhaps 5 million gallons of water per, per frac job. They're now using 10 to 15 million gallons uh, for each, each frac operation. So huge quantities of water. Conventional fracking developed oh, way back in the 1950s, and it was used by the oil and gas industry as a way to just somewhat increase the production of existing uh, gas and uh, oil uh, operations. And, and, and generally, they were using pretty small volumes of water, a few hundred gallons originally, maybe by the uh, start of this century, they might be using a, a a few uh, thousand gallons, maybe up to 10,000 gallons, but not, not the millions of gallons that are involved in, in high-volume hydraulic fracturing, a fundamentally different process. Has there been an increase in the amount of wells? Yes. I mean, the, there's been a explosion of, of drilling uh, for both uh, shale gas and shale oil over the last decade. And, and uh, 
let, let's start with shale gas. Natural gas is is methane gas. Uh, shale gas is simply methane gas that's been trapped in a shale formation. And uh, up until uh, the last 15 or 20 years, there was no commercial way to extract that methane and, and get the gas out, out for use. So what allowed that to change was high volume hydraulic fracturing where the where the shale is broken up and the gas is released, but also combined with high precision directional drilling. So uh, a well driller might uh, go down two, even three miles uh, below the surface of the soil, find a, a shale uh, layer, which might be fairly thin, but could go on for you know, hundreds of miles in, in any direction, even if it's only, uh, say, a few tens of meters thick. Once they encounter that shale, they then turn the bit and actually they can drill sideways and continue drilling out for another uh, several miles. So it's the combination of those two technologies which allowed the development of of shale gas only in the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, if, if you look uh, half of the shale gas that's ever been developed on the planet's been developed in the last five or six years. So it's, it's a new phenomenon and, and huge proliferation of well drilling that goes along with that. And I know there's some controversial components of fracking fluid. Could you describe some of the components for us? There, there's several aspects of it. I mean, for the most part, the fluid is is water. It's you know 95 percent or more water. But uh, the drillers, the, the frackers, are are adding a lot of substances uh, mm-hmm. that they need to to add. Some of those are. Uh, surfactants, which uh, detergents basically, which allow them to put that water down very quickly under high pressure. You couldn't do it without that surfactant or detergent. They add biocides, things to to make sure that uh, bacteria don't grow in the the fractures that they've created. They want to keep those open, so they add things to to, to kill and inhibit the the bacteria. They often add acids to to, uh, uh, dissolve some of the carbonates and things in the rock, which might interfere with the, the movement of the natural gas. So, so they're adding a lot of, of chemicals. Sometimes they'll actually add uh, benzene or, or diesel fuel, which contains a lot of benzene. And, uh, you know, that's carcinogenic, uh, toxic. Uh, so, so there's a lot of, yes, a lot of concern over what's being added. In addition to that, uh, the thing which people pay less attention to is that the uh, fracturing fluids are dissolving uh, substances out of the rock. It's not only releasing the methane, natural gas, and then maybe oil, but it's uh, it can be dissolving uh, radioactive substances out of it or or dissolving uh, mm. toxic hydrocarbons as well. So after the fracturing, you know, some of the water and fluid stays down underground permanently, but a, a large part of it, uh, a third to half, comes back to the surface. A lot of it right away in the first few days to a week after the fracking job, some of it more slowly after that. So so the materials that have been added, as well as the materials that have been uh, dissolved out of the rock, are, are brought back to the surface in, in rather large quantities. The fact that this isn't really well-regulated, that's known as the Halliburton loophole. Could you explain what that is? The Halliburton loophole is a very interesting phenomenon. Halliburton is one of the 
two uh, companies together with uh, Schlumberger mm. that are the people who really developed this high volume hydraulic fracturing technology. They're the ones who do it. So uh, an oil or gas company might go in and drill the well, but they turn to Halliburton or Schlumberger for help in doing the actual fracking. Mm. Uh, Dick Cheney, who was the vice president early in the century, uh, used to be the the head of Halliburton. So he, he came from that background when he went into the uh, White House. And uh, in the time period of about 2005, when he was uh, vice president, he worked with others very quietly to get the Senate and House to uh, pass legislation. Didn't get much attention at all. No one was really... Uh, even thinking about fracking in the public mm. at that point in time. But it basically was a, a law that said that the uh, materials which uh, are used in fracking are by definition not harmful, and whatever mm. comes back up after fracking is by definition not harmful. And therefore, you know, companies can almost use whatever they want. They don't have to report what they use. It's changed a little bit in some states more recently, but but originally not. And that's what the, the Congress and Senate ruled back in 2005. Mm -hmm. there's, there's really no provision for the federal government to regulate what's coming back up because even though uh, physical science would tell you it's toxic, nasty stuff, Congress has declared that it's, it's not and therefore mm. cannot be regulated. Yeah, if you look on the EPA website, um, where they're talking about this sort of loophole. They don't call it that, of course, but it's almost as if they have a pro-fracking tone while they're writing. So it's really interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the current administration clearly is, uh, uh, favors oil and gas industry generally, but uh, e even under the Obama administration, and of course the Halliburton thing came in when uh, Bush was president and, and Dick Cheney mm -hmm. was vice president again, but and they were gung-ho on oil and gas. Even mm. under the Obama administration, though, uh, the administration made shale gas uh, development and promotion a, a big part of their national agenda. They looked at it as something that would help drive our economy, and they helped try to promote it uh, elsewhere. That's right. Didn't President Obama believe that fracking could help us obtain a sort of like bridge fuel? He, he definitely, uh, his, his administration articulated that. He, he spoke of, mm -hmm. of the huge potential of shale gas as a, as a way to help drive uh, the energy needs of the United States uh, for long periods of time into the future. He talked about that more than once in his State of the Union speeches. You know, what he said, he, he'd been fed misinformation. There's really not as much shale gas out there that is commercially developable as, as he'd been led to believe. But, but uh, nonetheless, he... He promoted it, talked about something that would be good for our, our, our economy and, and energy self-sufficiency. I, I think he was dead wrong, but, but it's, <laughs> it's an important part of his legacy. Yeah. While we're at that, could you explain like the concept of something being a bridge fuel? And so the thought is that we know climate change is bad. We know we need to wean ourselves from fossil fuels. We certainly have to get rid of coal because it's... Uh, a dirty fuel that produces a lot of carbon dioxide emissions. But the thought is it's going to be a long time before we can really have a energy transformation to renewable energies. And in the mm. meanwhile, why don't we use natural gas, including shale gas, uh, as a bridge fuel? So we'll continue to use fossil fuels, but we'll get rid of the of, of coal, the nastiest of them, use the cleaner burning natural gas, as, as they refer to it, and, and over a period of perhaps decades, transition to 
to some uh, more perfect world where we also wean ourselves off the natural gas. That's the concept. There are a bunch of reasons that that's fundamentally wrong. It's it's not a bridge fuel at all. And and of course, by where we are now, almost 2020, we really can't afford to be using any fossil fuels much further into the future. Climate change is is simply too severe. And on the other side, the the renewable energy sources, wind and, and solar, are so mm-hmm. much less expensive now than, than even five or ten years ago. So there's the, the idea that we need a bridge fuel is, is gone now. We don't need a bridge fuel. But it was, it was never a, a great idea. There's, there's a fundamental flaw in the, in, the, in the concept, which is that it focused purely on carbon dioxide emissions. And, and carbon dioxide is the most important greenhouse gas for sure. Mm-hmm. We put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It's going to be with us for centuries to come, maybe a, a thousand years to come. So we, we don't want to be putting more in. And it is true that to get the same amount of energy, uh, we're producing more carbon dioxide when we use coal compared to natural gas or shale gas. That's absolutely true. So that's the concept. The problem is that shale gas and, and natural gas generally uh, is mostly methane. It's 90, 95% methane. And methane too is a, a greenhouse gas. It's actually over 100 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide. So if you end mm. up uh, emitting as unburned uh, natural gas, some of that methane to the atmosphere, it undoes whatever climate advantage you might have had from emitting a little bit less carbon carbon dioxide. From my standpoint, shale gas and natural gas are, are absolute travesties for the climate rather than being bridge fuels. Absolutely. So how exactly is methane released during the fracking process? Let me step back a little bit and rephrase your question. When, when we developed shale gas using fracking, how is, is methane mm-hmm. released to the atmosphere in unburned forms? And, and some of that happens at the time of, of fracking. Some of it happens even before a well is fracked. Some of it continues to happen at the well site after the fracking. But some of it also happens when we store the gas, uh, process the gas, when we transport it in high-pressure pipelines to to, to the consumer or in the lower pressure pipelines that, that go to consumers. So let me start with the consumer end of it. There's some brand new evidence. If, if you're using natural gas, say, to uh, heat hot water in your basement with a uh, gas tank, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of four tenths, maybe three, four, five tenths uh, of a percent of the natural gas you're burning in that gas heater is actually emitted into your basement as unburned methane and then seeps off to the yeah. atmosphere. Uh, the pipes which deliver the gas to your your home are even leakier than that. If we look at cities like uh, New York or Boston, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, the old cities of the northeastern U.S., uh, a lot of the delivery gas pipelines are more than 100 years old. They tend to be, those older pipelines are cast iron pipes that are sort of butted end to end. They're not welded. They don't, at this point, even have seals between them. So uh, gas, methane is leaking out of out of that uh, at, at pretty uh, pretty high rates. Maybe uh, one, one and a half percent of, of the gas that goes through them is emitted as methane. If you go back to the uh, higher pressure pipelines that uh, take the gas from the shale gas fields to cities, they also leak and they use compressors to pressurize the gas, which and the the design of the compressors purposefully emits uh, some gas. It's just how they operate. 
when you store the gas, there's some seepage that's allowed to go off in order to control the pressures. Uh, so again, that's a purposeful emission. To go to repair a pipeline, you've got to get all of the methane out of the pipeline so you don't explode the thing when you start welding. And so that's all released to the atmosphere. So that's all what happens after the gas even leaves the site. In terms of what happens at the site, when we drill a new well that, that's going to be fracked, uh, often the, these shale formations are, are deep underground. They're uh, higher, closer to the surface. There's uh, often some industrial history. So, for instance, in uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania, the shale formations are uh, are down a couple of miles. But higher above them, there's coal mining and there's... Uh, traditional oil and gas wells that have been developed actually since the late uh, 1800s. And as you drill down to the shale formations, you're drilling through some of that old history and there's pockets of methane associated with that that are released. In the When the wells actually fracked and the flowback material, the water and toxic materials flows back to the surface, a lot of methane comes up with that too. It's sort of a frothy, gassy uh, mess and, and that froth is, is methane. So, uh, Traditionally, industry just sort of released that to the atmosphere for the first couple of days to a week or so until they could get the the well into a production mode. And then once it's in production mode, you know, small leaks just continually happen. It's very, very difficult to to uh, contain a gas. So overall, we think somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, three and a half, four, maybe even five percent of the of the natural gas, shale gas that is developed is leached to the atmosphere as unburned methane sometime from that initial drilling all the way through to final the customer. Could you explain what GWP is? Yeah, GWP is an abbreviation for the global warming potential. And it's a way that we can compare methane as a greenhouse gas to carbon dioxide. And again, both car- carbon dioxide is the most important greenhouse gas. It's responsible for about 1.66 watts per square meter of heating of the Earth's surface. But methane is the second most important greenhouse gas, responsible for about one watt per square meter. So not that uh, much less so. It's also, there's a lot less methane in the atmosphere. It's about 200 times more carbon dioxide than methane. But for that methane that's in the atmosphere, it's a little bit more than 100 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas. So when we want to, to to compare the relative importance of them and look at, at changes and, and sources, uh, we need to compare methane and carbon dioxide. And what makes that difficult is that while the methane's in the atmosphere, it's far more powerful. But as I mentioned earlier, carbon dioxide, once it's released, is going to influence the atmosphere for hundreds of years, a thousand years or so. Methane's only in the atmosphere with a half-life of about 12 years, and then it's oxidized to carbon dioxide and it's gone as methane. So for the time it's in the atmosphere, it's a huge problem, but it's it's not as long-term of a problem. So the global warming potential is, is a, a simply the a comparison of the amount of, of warming for methane that's emitted compared to carbon dioxide that's emitted for a defined mm-hmm. period of time, either 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 500 years. And, and traditionally, going back to the Kyoto Protocol of uh, the 20th century, People weren't paying too much attention to methane as a greenhouse gas, so they didn't worry terribly about it. But they said, let's compare methane and carbon dioxide at the time frame of 100 years. So this is the global warming potential of a 100-year comparison. And what we now know is that that 
underestimates the damage that methane does in a shorter time period because the methane is largely gone after 30 years or so. When you compare them 100 years, you're just averaging in no effect for those final 70 years. Given the rate of global warming now, we, we you know we're in danger of reaching uh, major dangerous temperatures within the next 10, 25 years or so, and methane is a huge contributor to warming at that time frame. So, so a lot of us have mm-hmm. argued we really should be using a global warming potential of a shorter time period, say 10 or 20 years. And and I, I've been arguing for 20 simply because the uh, the science behind it is is, is well known and well developed, and there's a the literature going back 20 or 30 years to allow us to think about it. So, And it's gotten some traction. Actually, the, the state of New York uh, passed new legislation last summer that mandates that, at least in our state, we will compare methane to carbon dioxide using the 20-year GWP, which I think is real progress. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear. You mentioned in your article where you discuss methane emissions and climatic warming risk from fracking that you would agree with the implementation of a carbon tax that takes into account methane. Could you describe that for us? I think generally the idea of having a a tax or or a fee on on carbon is is a good idea uh, as long as it's not not regressive. So let's say that, uh, think of it from a standpoint of carbon dioxide, uh, we, we know that the, the damage done from releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in terms of climate change and human health impacts, et cetera, uh, is in the neighborhood of uh, 60 to maybe $100 per uh, metric ton of carbon dioxide. So you could impose a fee to that amount. It would uh, make people less likely to, to continue to use the fuels that obviously would give an incentive towards renewable energy. And, you know, just $100 per ton, say on gasoline, works out to a, a increase a fee of about 90 cents per gallon of gasoline. So it's, it's significant, but if you're paying three or four, five dollars uh, per gasoline now, it's, it's, it's not going to break the bank. It might be an uh, incentive to push you more towards an electric vehicle. That's the idea. So mm-hmm. most of the, the focus on, on such fees has been around carbon dioxide, but uh, they're generally referred to as a carbon tax, and, and methane also is a carbon carbon gas. Carbon dioxide is uh, carbons with oxygens and methane is carbon with hydrogen. So so I mm-hmm. and some others have argued that we should be using a, a, a carbon fee that uh, taxes both of those. And for methane, uh, my suggestion is that we uh, use this global warming potential of, of 20 years for methane that allows us to compare the, the two. So, so using the same uh, basic fee, just just recognizing that uh, a small amount of methane does more harm than than carbon dioxide over a 20-year time period, and, and taxing it appropriately. And again, I, I I personally, one one can argue that uh, such fees are are regressive, and the less privileged in society who are already having a hard time buying gas for their car are going to be disadvantaged mm. compared to the wealthiers who can more easily move to an electric vehicle. And that's certainly true. But uh, some uh, proponents for fees have suggested that the uh, the money actually be completely returned to, to citizens. So we, we pay the $60 or $100 per metric ton of, of carbon dioxide or, or methane, uh, but that money is then distributed uh, back to people. That's really interesting. 
Yeah, I, I like the idea because it, it provides an incentive against using fossil fuels, and, and uh, mm. but everyone, you know, get, gets some of that back. They can do with it as they like. It doesn't have to be used to to uh, move towards renewables, but it's uh, it, it does away with the penalty to the disadvantage, and it, it also sort of locks in a, a funding system which keeps everyone wanting to tax it, right? <laughs> it's a yeah. good tax, if you will. How do they know exactly, or not, obviously not exactly, but do they have ideas of how, like, logistically money would get back into people's hands? No, you know, and, and you can imagine a variety of ways that could be done, but uh, there have been some proposals yeah. uh, at the federal level to do that, and, and also here in the state of New York there's some proposals. I don't think they've gotten a uh, majority, well, they certainly haven't gotten majority support yet. They'd be law if they had, but they're, they're yeah. starting to get some leverage, and I, I would hope that people pay attention and, and move move towards such a fee. What would you say in response to claims that the environmental risks associated with fracking could just be managed with technology and regulations. Well, I, I would I would disagree with the assertion that that we uh, can do a good job of of managing those environmental risks, um, and that the proof is, is that we haven't. You know, the uh, if we look at the flowback water, the flowback material that uh, comes to the surface after hydraulic fracturing, there really isn't a good uh, solution for getting rid of that. You know, and industries uh, tried various things for a while. In Pennsylvania, they were putting it through uh, municipal sewage treatment plants, uh, which is ridiculous. Sewage treatment plants aren't designed to take care of that kind of waste. So it was actually flowing out into the, the toxic materials were simply flowing out into the rivers that the sewage was discharged to. Uh, eventually, the state uh, prevented them from doing that. One of the other uh, provisions that uh, industry has used is to inject it into old wells and just store it underground, and, and that's uh, led to uh, increase in earthquakes, so not such a good idea. Uh, mm. there's, there's plenty of uh, anecdotal evidence that when you ship this waste material to wherever you're trying to dispose of it, a lot of it disappears along the way. So, I mean, th think of it this way. If you're a, a trucker and you're hired to drive this waste uh, several hundred miles or a thousand miles and you're, you're paid by the, the truckload, uh, you might have an incentive to only drive 20 or 30 miles and have it leak along the road somewhere and then uh, spend a few days and save, save on the diesel fuel as opposed to actually delivering it. And there's, you know, no one checks to see whether the material actually shows up. The waste fluid it just is not well regulated at all. From the standpoint of, of methane emissions, people say, well, we can pass regulations to reduce those and make them acceptable in terms of the climate risk. And the Obama administration tried to do that. The Trump administration has rolled them back. And people go, it's terrible that Trump has rolled them back. I didn't think the regulations were effective under the Obama administration. And the reason is, uh, in this case, methane is a colorless, odorless gas. You, you can't see it. You don't perceive it. There's no enforcement agency which goes out and measures the emissions. So under the Obama administration, the regulation was that uh, you should try not to emit methane, and then you report self-report to the Environmental Protection Agency how much you're emitting, and there's no independent verification of that. Well, you know, that, that just doesn't work. And mm -hmm. quite, quite frankly, the oil and gas industry has a uh, very, very poor history over the last century of, of being honest in about self-reporting anything. So 
one can imagine a world in which perhaps you could have uh, environmental regulation and oversight, but it would be very, very expensive, and it's it's never meaningfully happened in the context of the oil and gas industry. So you're you're involved in politics a little bit, right? Well, I'd be myself. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a professor. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I teach and I do research, uh, uh, and I. Uh, believe that the research we do is is objective and but uh, as a research scientist I've been trained since the very start that uh, one has an ethical obligation to bring your findings uh, to the public and to policymakers and I, I I believe that and I've certainly tried to do that very cool do you find because I know when we were talking about the fracking liquids uh, you mentioned sort of a Maybe not a miscommunication, but rather a lack of communication between science and Congress. Do you find any more of those in in specifically in your field? Anything that like frustrates you, or anything that you've noticed, like with policy not really responding to science? You know, sometimes I've 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 actually done science on a lot of issues over the years, offshore oil pollution, uh, nutrient pollution from agriculture as it affects coastal dead zones, as as well as as methane and and things of that sort. Sometimes science influences policy uh, well and fairly directly. Uh, Oftentimes it doesn't. And there's there's no perfect mechanism in our democracy for, for getting the best most objective science into the process. So it it, uh, it happens uh, sometimes and sometimes it simply doesn't. In the case of the Halliburton loophole, you know, that legislation literally passed in, uh, you know, the middle of the night back in 2005. No one was paying attention. No, mm-hmm. no scientist that I know of was thinking much about the problem, but to the extent they were thinking about it, they had no idea that Congress was considering passing such a rule, certainly people would have said that's not such a great idea if they'd been aware, but there wasn't, simply was not that communication. And I, I think the politicians who made that decision weren't, weren't uh, for the most part, evil people or anything of the sort. They just didn't look yeah. at it as a big deal. They make lots of decisions all of the time and and things move on. That's a, it's a really, really poor decision, it turns out. But I don't, you know, they just weren't thinking about it. It's the bottom line. The only time I've seen... Uh, science really do a good job of informing policy is is when the citizens are interested in the issue, concerned, and, and, and yeah. raising a ruckus, if you will, and then uh, scientists are in, invited to, to, to give advice, which sometimes at that point politicians take. So an example I'd use of that, here in the state of New York, uh, we banned high-volume hydraulic fracking for, for shale gas development. We did that back in uh, 2013 or 2014. And uh, we, we still use a lot of natural gas in the state, and it's coming from Pennsylvania, and it is fracked gas. So that means you have a, a population in the state that's quite concerned. The average person in New York doesn't like the idea of fracking. They don't like that mm. they're using fracked gas from Pennsylvania, and therefore there's an opening to do something else. And, uh, you know, that that led to this uh, uh, creation of this law last summer, the uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which had passed the state assembly for a few years in the past. But this year we we had a Democratic Senate that also uh, passed it, and the governor signed it into law in uh, July. 
And it does a bunch of things. It, it, it does a better job of accounting for methane emissions, which I alluded to a little earlier, but it sets uh, aggressive targets for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, including methane, so that within 10 years, all uh, energy use in the state should reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. That's uh, about the most ambitious target of any government anywhere in the world. And it's a uh, you know, scientists had a, a big role in making the, the details of the legislation make sense. But in the the politicians, of course, were responding to what the public wanted, which is some sort of a response. So I think it's a that's an example of a, a, a good role of, of science influencing the policy. Cool. So like maybe one direct bridge from science to policy is like people paying attention, like voters paying attention. Yeah, voters paying attention, that the press paying attention, and and getting enough of the complexity out there so people understand they don't understand all the complexity. It's a complex world, but they need to understand that some of these issues are complex enough that you do need expert input in addressing them. And that's you know that's the role of the scientist is to try and provide that objective input to these rather complicated issues. Yeah. Um, so you published a new paper in the Journal of Biogeosciences this past summer. Um, what's some new information that you made available in that paper? The it, It's a, a global look at uh, methane, changes in methane emissions over the last decade or so, and what the sources might be in the, the context. You know, if we're, because methane is such a powerful greenhouse gas, if we are to try and keep the planet from warming to... Uh, well below two degrees Celsius, which is what the United Nations uh, and the nations of the world agreed we needed to do uh, four years ago back in Paris at the COP21 negotiations. If we're going to do that, we need to cut methane emissions. And yet uh, methane has been going up quite rapidly over the last decade. And curiously, if you look at the 20th century, methane was rising rapidly in the atmosphere. For the first decade of this century, methane concentrations were flat, so the emissions were constant. But over the last 10 years, methane's been rising rapidly again. And uh, some uh, atmospheric scientists had published uh, pretty high visibility papers back in 2016 saying that the likely cause of that was animal agriculture, cows. And they based that on the uh, chemical signature of methane. You know, Methane is a single carbon atom with four hydrogen atoms around it, but there are different types of carbon in the world. Most carbon is carbon-12, stable isotope. Some of it's a little bit heavier isotopically, carbon-13, and some of it's radioactive carbon, carbon-14. They looked at the change in the amount of carbon-13 compared to carbon-12 in the methane over the last uh, decade and said this indicates it's coming from cows. So basically, my paper reanalyzed that. Uh, it pointed out something that people had missed, and that is that the methane that's coming from shale gas uh, has a slightly different chemical signature in terms of this isotopic composition than does methane coming from uh, conventional fossil fuels. So once once you correct for that, you end up with a different conclusion. And my conclusion was that the the big driver of the spike in methane over the last decade is uh, increased uh, methane from fossil fuels generally and that shale gas mm. development in the United States is probably the single biggest increase in that, responsible for you know, at least a third, maybe 40% of all of the global increase in methane over the last decade is shale gas in the United States. So a pretty controversial conclusion. Obviously, industry doesn't like to hear that, and, uh, and there's <laughs> plenty of scientists who uh, 
aren't quite sure I got that right either. So there are plenty of people thinking about it and, you know, checking my uh, assumptions and, and reworking it. That's the way science works. It, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but you never know. And the, the science process is one of checks and balances. <laughs> That's exciting. That's always good to hear. It was, it was fun, you know, it's, and it's uh, something it took me a couple of years to, uh, to do the analysis, to try and think of what might be going on, to pull the information together. And in the end, it was a gigantic algebra exercise. And I actually have not done much algebra since I was a high school student. As a high school <laughs> student, I was very good at algebra, but uh, in the 50 plus years I've been out of high school, I have not used algebra <laughs> very often. So. Relearning algebra yeah. at that scale was 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 a fun thing, and uh, I was actually able uh -huh. to do it by paper and pencil on my uh, kitchen counter, much as I might have in high school, as opposed to using a computer. So that too was fun. Wow, very cool. All right, so that's all the preloaded questions that we have. We do have some listener questions. If you're okay with answering some of those, I'll do my best. Awesome. This one comes from. We can use the name. It's fun. This one comes from Dylan. Um, does fracking cause earthquakes? And why is it so damn difficult to get a straight answer to this question? Well, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, let me give a general answer. The, the whole development of shale gas with, uh, with fracking definitely causes earthquakes. There's, there's no debate about that. Uh, We've seen a, a big increase in earthquakes in, in Ohio, even more so in uh, uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas. And the, the science is very clear that uh, many of those increased earthquakes is, is due to the injection of this uh, flowback material, the, the water and, and the toxic substances which come back after we've fracked. We inject that underground into old... Uh, oil and gas wells, and it uh, increases the pressure and, and definitely causes earthquakes. That's, uh, uh, there's no scientific debate about that at all. For a while, people were saying that was the only thing causing earthquakes, and it wasn't the fracking itself. It wasn't the actual injection of the fracked material into the shale formations. Uh, there's growing uh, evidence uh, over the last two to three years that that isn't quite true and that the fracking process itself also can cause earthquakes. But the bigger problem is the disposal of the uh, frac fluid returns. Mm. Why is it uh, difficult to get a straight answer? Well, you know, this <laughs> there's two reasons. Again, half of all of the shale gas and shale oil that's ever been developed in the planet has been developed in the last six years. It takes time to do science. It takes time to observe things. So the, the science is, is very new. That, that's part of the issue. And then, of course, there are very powerful, very... Uh, rich vested interests who would just as soon obscure the answer with <laughs> get, getting the science out into the public in a in a straightforward way is uh, can, can be problematic even when the science is pretty clear cut which in this case it is we have another question from our listener charlie and he asks are there any circumstances where it is okay to use fracking i usually only ever hear the negatives that's that's a great question. My, my personal view is that we should not use fracking to develop shale oil or shale gas at all. We should be weaning ourselves off of all fossil fuels as quickly as we possibly can. I think we need to do that on the time scale of uh, the next five to, to 20 years. And, and given that, there's there's no need for fracking to get fossil fuels, so we, we shouldn't be doing it. Are there beneficial uses of fracking? Well, well, possibly. And let me give you one. My university, Cornell, 
currently uses natural gas to to heat our our campus and you know we're in the upstate part of new york it's it's cold here we use a lot of natural gas to heat the campus the university is exploring the idea of using a deep earth source heat so if we drill down uh, a few miles the earth is is naturally hot can we extract that heat and use it instead to heat the campus the thought is perhaps we can but in order to do so we might need to do some fracking the design that's uh, they're going to test is to drill uh, a pair of wells or in this case a few pairs of wells but they'll put water down one well and then bring it back up another well after it travels through a, the warm rock formation for a bit and that may require that we frack the rock to let the water flow through it are, are there worries about that yeah i mean that still could cause some earthquakes, although the university is doing a good job to look at the detailed geology and try and minimize that. Uh, it could still extract some materials out of the out of the rock, which is a problem, but uh, the idea is to keep it closed loop and not, not release it to the environment. So there might be an occasional good use of fracking like that, but, but keep in mind, we could probably, if this works at all in our campus, we'd probably be talking about a total of three, maybe four pairs of wells total. Uh, so three to four fracking operations totally for campus our size. You could probably heat the entire state of New York with a few hundred fracking jobs, whereas now we're doing tens of thousands of them for these uh, oil and gas wells. I'm going to be thinking about that one for another minute or two. But uh, <laughs> another, yeah, there, there are a lot of people thinking about it here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, this one comes from Ben. How do we know the negative environmental impact and yet continue to allow it to happen? Why is fracking backed by lawmakers? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> and of course, it's not backed by all lawmakers, right? There are plenty of lawmakers out there who are quite outspoken in, in thinking we need to, uh, to, to stop it. And some places it has stopped. Fracking is banned in New York. It's banned in Vermont. It's banned in the province of Quebec. It's banned in France. It's banned in Bulgaria. So that's all because lawmakers have, have acted. Why don't all lawmakers everywhere ban it? Well, I think they feel tremendous uh, political pressure from very, very strong vested interests. And, uh, you know, the, it's up to the citizenry to uh, counteract that and, and make our voices heard. Yeah. If they don't respond then, then, it's, then we should be replacing them, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Will wants to know, does fracking affect water quality? And what is the deal with people being able to light their sink water on fire? Yeah, two, two different questions of a sort. <laughs> yes, fracking can affect water quality. When, that, when the frac fluid returns come to the surface, it's full of not only the toxic substances that the drillers added, but the toxic and radioactive substances that have been extracted out of the, the shale. So, you know, a lot of that stuff makes its way into the environment, uh, Due to poor disposal, there simply isn't a good disposal method. So that, that affects water quality. Uh, sometimes a well can also leak into a groundwater aquifer, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's an issue. So the water quality is a, a very real concern. The uh, letting you sink uh, water on fire, that's, that's methane. Uh, methane's quite, uh, quite flammable, so, so it'll burn when you uh, put your, your match there <laughs> next to it coming out. <laughs> Uh, that happens occasionally, naturally. There, there are places, uh, say in Pennsylvania or here in New York State, where there's enough methane naturally coming up into surface aquifers. Uh, it's probably true that that's been increased by 
by fracking, and there's probably more methane getting into some situations uh, contributing to that. The evidence behind that is uh, is not great because we don't have a lot of you know before or after studies. So if you go into an area, say in northeastern Pennsylvania, where you can quite commonly see the sink water on fire, uh, we don't have good historical data. It's probably gotten worse, and the people mm-hmm. who live there say it it has, but you know, we don't have good objective uh, data from third-party people to to prove that definitively. We just simply were not out there doing the before fracking studies. Yeah. Well, I think that that might be all the questions that we have written down here. Those are good um, questions. Well, thank <laughs> you. Our, our audience will be happy to hear that. Um, do you have anything that you'd want to talk about or anything that you'd want to bring up? Any um, big takeaways that you have for someone listening? I think the only thing I might add is uh, building on this bridge fuel idea. You know, the, the idea of natural gas, shale gas as a bridge fuel, is, it was very much uh, something that developed er- early here in the 21st century. And you'll occasionally still hear industry pushing it or a politician pushing it, but by and large, not. People have backed off of that, including in industry. And what we're hearing now more, I, I heard this first, I was at the uh, European Parliament uh, four or five years ago giving them a briefing, and I started to hear mm-hmm. that we needed natural gas as a uh, basically uh, uh, help with the uh, use of uh, renewable energy. So the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, so we should use natural gas to you know, buffer in between those dark periods when the wind isn't blowing. And and increasingly, we've heard that in the United States. So you, there are more and more ads on TV saying, you know, natural gas industry is part of a, a green future that's based largely on solar and wind. And, and I, I guess what I'd like to make sure your listeners know is that that's complete nonsense. <laughs> we, we, we do not need natural gas to help with uh, solar and wind at all. Yes, it's true. The wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but we can manage a grid using those as our energy sources with, with some energy storage. And we need absolutely no fossil fuels. That's been demonstrated in some places and we can do it everywhere. Mark Jacobson, who's a, a very clever engineer at Stanford, has is, is, uh, done an incredible amount of analysis on this uh, over the last decade or so. And he and I and others wrote a paper back in 2013 looking specifically at the case of New York, and we concluded that we could use existing technologies to fuel the entire energy economy of New York with absolutely no fossil fuels. And in part, it's because you know, if you have a connected grid, uh, maybe the wind isn't blowing all the time in a particular location. It clearly isn't. But across the state, we looked at actual data, and if it's uh, – not windy on Long Island, well, it may well be on the shores of, of Lake Erie. And so with a connected grid, the, the wind is constant enough across the state to uh, mean you don't need a huge amount of storage, actually. And of course, the the seasonality of the sun and the day-night cycle of the sun is incredibly predictable. So you just build that into your, uh, into your plants and you store energy. And people go, well, Energy storage is a problem. We need all this lithium for batteries and all. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'd view that as sort of a a transitional. There, there are other ways to store energy. And for an example, a community in northern England is now using a, 
liquefied uh, air. So when they have a surplus of energy from wind or solar, they supercool the air, they turn into liquid form, they keep it liquefied until they they need electricity again, and then they evaporate some of that off and, and use that to uh, power an electric turbine, which regenerates the electricity. So no lithium's involved at all, you know. So, wow. so there, there are a bunch of ways to store energy. We can store it as, as heat. I, I heat my house with a ground source uh, geothermal, so I'm, I'm extracting heat out of the 50 to 55 degree groundwater that's around my home. Uh, that uses some electricity, but it's hugely efficient because of the extraction of the heat. And I can, of course, store uh, hot water thermally. So, you know, mm. if I have the energy during the day when it's sunny, I can run the heat pump, store the water hot until at night when the sun's no longer out, but I have hot water and I just build off of that storage. So we don't have to store electricity. We don't need to use just batteries. There are a whole bunch of ways forward. And None of them require natural gas. Wow. So do you think that there's a, within, I don't know, maybe the next 50 to 100 years, a way that the entire United States could just be fueled by alternative energies like wind and solar? Oh, absolutely. And I think we need to do it uh, much faster than that. I mean, our our, our plan... Mm. The, the plan we published back in 2013 said that, you know, with political will, it would be cost effective to move to 100 percent wind and solar and hydro uh, by about 2035 or so. You know, well, it's that's only 15 years wow. away. Of course, we've wasted some time getting there. But the the goal of the new legislation in New York is that we get 40 percent of the way there within the next 10 years and that we we reach that uh, no use of fossil fuels by 2050. So 40 years from now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's what our political leadership thinks. Uh, I and other scientists have encouraged them to believe that. But that means I believe it. We we can do it. And we're, we're going to try and do it in this state. I think it's entirely doable. Wow. That's exciting. It's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> we're serious about climate change. No, we need to do it. We just simply need to move away from fossil fuels. The technology's there. The things are cost effective. We just need to yeah. you know, get the, the, the correct funding in the right places at the right time. And we need to deal with the disruption to people's jobs and livelihood. We need to train people for the transition. You know, overall, yeah. it's more jobs, but they're different jobs. And there are a lot of transitional <clears throat> issues to be worked through. But... It's necessary, though. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good place to, to cap off. Brianna, do you? Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for the chance to talk to you. Hello. Thank you for listening. Um, if you enjoyed it, maybe share the episode with a friend. Give us a five-star rating on you know iTunes or wherever you're listening to it. Um, if you want to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, our handle is NoPlanetBcast. We also have a Facebook. We also have a LinkedIn. Brianna made us a Reddit account. I did. And how's that going, Brianna? <laughs> it's in the works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hold on. Let me let me actually look at the account because I have access to it really quick. Yeah, let me hop on. All <laughs> right. And it says, you just commented on one thread and you said the word oop. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that's good. So good. No, great. Okay, but in all seriousness, this episode was awesome, mostly because we truly believe in applying objective science to sustaining 
climate. He was just really, really great to talk to about that. A lot of his core values we share. So we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, just a great guy. Really nice interview. Great energy, actually. And really good vibes as well. I know you said, I know you just, Brianna, listen, I know you just said that we're big believers in objective science, but I sometimes there's just a good vibe. Do you know what I mean? Because on our interviews, we'll say to our guest, um, really quick, can we do a vibe check? That's not true. And our guest always <laughs> says, yeah, of course. And then we do it. And this one was really good. This one had a really good vibe. <laughs> So thank you all for listening, and uh, we hope you have a great rest of your... Yeah, this is usually the part where he expects me to say something, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not going to. Fair enough. 